Can you hear me now? Okay, good, good. Well, it's great to be with you. As we get started this morning and look at the passage, Luke 7, 36 to 50, that we have for today, and I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open up to that, I just wanted to say a word of appreciation for our La Habra overseers. That includes Joe, that includes Steve Janney, that includes Mark Comstock and Mark Loomis. Because of these guys, uh, their love for the Lord, their love for this campus, their vision, um, it gives me a great deal of encouragement and confidence as we look into the future for our campus here at La Habra. So I want to thank you guys for the way you have worked so hard and so diligently. Thank you. I also want to say a little bit of a personal word, too. Um, I was reflecting back this week about 16, 17 years ago. I was having lunch with the former pastor of Whittier Hills, uh, Redemption Hill, Whittier Hills. Hard to get used to some of this words, and that was Dale James. And we were having, sitting around having lunch, and he was asking me about a project I was working on at the time, and it was called... The Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. And it was a massive project that eventually was published in 2002 that had 17 different contributors and a variety of other different kinds of providers. And so I was telling him, the one thing that we're lacking right now is I need an artist to do some work with uh, things that we were calling cityscapes and some other artistic work. And we were new to Whittier Hills at the time, and Dale said... I've got just the right person for you. And he introduced me to a guy named Dennis Bredo. And Dennis worked diligently on these art pieces, and he's an amazingly talented artist. And his work uh, is inserted in pages all over this 2,000-page, four-volume commentary set. But that began my relationship with Dennis. And even at that early stage, I just saw something in this guy that I deeply appreciated, a humility, a tender heart before the Lord, and a heart of service. And watched him over the years as he worked with the young marrieds group at Whittier Hills, as he gave himself in ministry in such a variety of ways, and was so glad when he became my neighbor, literally, just over the fence, and was so glad to join him in this project here at La Habra. And as I reflect back on this time, I've had to convince myself, Dennis is in a period of realignment, because once we're called to ministry, we're always in ministry. And so I just invite you to pray with me as we think of how Dennis will realign his ministry priorities. And he holds this very tightly, that he is in ministry for life. So just join me for a second as we uh, remember Dennis this morning and want to uphold him in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for Dennis, Krista, Mel, Brooke, and their little son. Father, I pray that you will be with them this morning. I pray that you will give them rest. I pray that you will give them deep, deep rest. You will restore them, that you will encourage them, and that you will lift them up. And I pray that as they realign 
and seek your face for what that realignment would look like, that your spirit would give them clear guidance. We pray that you will uphold them by your mighty right arm. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I thought about this transitional period in our church and what I would do this morning, I have to admit, I was really tempted to go off script and get off of Luke and do something that I thought might be more appropriate for this morning. And then I had been reading and rereading Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, and that's where I'd like you to turn. And it dawned on me that this passage of Scripture is what was appropriate for this morning. Because this passage of Scripture represents the heartbeat, the passion, the vision, the goals that we had even of starting this work here in La Habra. In this passage is the heart of the gospel and what this gospel means for different types of folk. And it is a great touchstone for us this morning as we re-envision the months ahead for La Habra and what this is all about, why we're here, why we're engaging in this ministry. So I invite you to turn to it with me, and then we will step through it. And the way that I'm going to go about this this morning is I will read the passage and then make a few comments. There's a lot of stuff going on in this passage that requires some comment. And I'll read a little bit and then make a few comments and then go back into the text itself. And then at the end, I've got four reflections, four things that I think this passage tells us that are relevant messages for us. So I just invite you to uh, look at this with me. I brought my reading glasses just in case. (laughs) So verse 36 gives us uh, the setting of this particular uh, passage. So read it with me. One of the Pharisees asked him, that would be Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer. Uh, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And as we look at that, uh, it's important to note that this seems, on the surface, like a really kind thing to do. Oh, cool, you're inviting me over for dinner? Everything must be just fine. But the Pharisees didn't have a very good record up to this point in Luke's gospel. The Pharisees were a group that were not only checking Jesus out, but they had already made up their mind that they were opposed to him. They were denying who he claimed to be, and they were finding ways and searching for ways to trip him up. So this is a little bit of a setup. It's not just a nice, hey, come on over, we'll watch the ball game and have a great time together. Uh, it's a little bit of a setup here. And we see that even back as far as chapter 6, verse 7, when uh, the scribes and Pharisees watched Jesus. to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him, which reflects a mind made up. They're just looking for an excuse to pull him down. And then in the last and most recent passage, 7 verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves. 
So there's already this sense of opposition, hostility toward Jesus. And this group as a whole is not too happy with what's going on. The historian in me wants to pause and just say, okay, let's talk a little bit more about these Pharisees. Who were these people? Now, this is Israel in the first century, and it's the land of the Jews, and they have the land themselves, but Rome is the power that is in political control at the time. But within Judaism at the time, there were four different groups. Now, in some ways, they could resemble our denominations, and Roman Catholicism, Baptists, and Presbyterians, but that might be oversimplifying it. These were very different groups that had different ideologies and different responsibilities in the, in the, in the scope of things. There's a, Roman, a, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus that tells us about these four different groups, and he tells us that the Pharisees were by far the most numerous. These were, I guess maybe the best way to put it, these were the Bible-believing folks of the day. They took the Bible very seriously. They took it very literally. They wanted to obey the Bible. And they even compiled a, a mass of oral traditions, of oral laws and oral rules, uh, to keep Jewish people from breaking the law. Eventually, this was all written up, and it became part of Jewish rabbinic tradition that we call the Mishnah and the Talmuds. And so their idea was, here we have the Bible. Let's put a fence around the Bible with a number of laws, and then people, if they violate out here, at least we're preventing them from violating the Bible itself. And so they were creating all of these oral traditions and rules and laws and legal systems to keep people from disobeying the law. But what we find in the ministry of Jesus is that they are somewhat hypocritical in this. They're very detailed and punctilious about every detail of the law, but their hearts are in the wrong place. And they view themselves as making a claim upon God as meriting some kind of favor with God. And that's one group, the Pharisees, but they had the most influence on the people. There are also three other groups in Judaism, the Sadducees, and they were kind of in political power. They weren't the scholars of the law, but they had the money, they had the power, they had the relationships with Rome that kept them going, and they tended to be the priests. There was also a group called the Zealots, and this group was really upset with Rome. And they were trying to do things to throw off the yoke of Roman rule. And then finally, there is a group called the Essenes. They were kind of like the monastic movement of the first century. And this was the group that we might know better today that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they tended to be the outliers and live in different places, separating themselves from the, all the corruption among the Pharisees and Sadducees, living out in the desert and going about their own way. But it's these Pharisees that had the influence among the people, and that was the final group called the Am Ha'aretz, the people, the common people of the land. And so they were very influential on the people, and therefore Jesus is concerned about that because of the impact and influence they had. 
So verses 37 and 38 continue with our story. Verse 37 says this, And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, the text doesn't say what kind of a sinner she was, but given the traditions of the Pharisees and the way they would view someone like this, especially the opposite gender, most commentators think she was likely a prostitute. This isn't the whole story. There are probably other elements that are a bit of backstory to this. But it's apparent that she already knows Jesus. She knew he would be there for lunch uh, or the mealtime that they were having. Uh, She planned this ahead of time. She bought this perfume and, and, and brought it. And it's likely that she had an encounter with Jesus before that. I wish we had the full backstory on this, but what we have is sufficient for this. One of the things that I've struggled with in trying to think through this passage is, like, how in the world did she get in the house? You know, here Jesus is invited, or uh, the Pharisees invited somebody over for dinner, and there's other people there beyond Jesus, but how did she get in the house? We don't have strangers walk in our house when we have a group of people over for dinner and do weird things like this. But this is where we have to kind of break free from our uh, Southern California culture and kind of transport ourselves back into Middle Eastern culture of a Jewish sort and realize things were done a little differently then. Uh, Commentators looking at this passage, they look at the situation and the setting... And most of them think this is probably an event that took place on the Sabbath. It was probably after the synagogue service. And it was likely a group of people from the synagogue that the Pharisee invited over for the meal. They would have had a a table very low to the floor with mats surrounding the table. And they reclined on them, literally. There were no chairs But here's the kicker. I I mean, it was kind of an open setting, and in the Middle Eastern side of things, others could come and be around the periphery of this and listen to the conversation that would take place. So that part of it, from a person from the first century, it wouldn't be utterly surprising as it is to us. It seemed weird to me, but it wouldn't have been surprising at that time at this dinner party. And she brings in this bottle of expensive fragrance, opens it up, and Jesus is leaning on this uh, mat, reclining at the table with his legs outstretched from behind. And this woman, rather than just listening to the conversation, immediately takes this expensive perfume and opens it up and pours it on his feet. And she begins crying. I mean, she's, it's crocodile tears. I mean, she's really uh, 
really moved, very emotional, and so on, and didn't bring a towel, and she wipes it with her hair. All seems kind of strange. And this action is really unparalleled in antiquity. You can't go to other sources in antiquity and find a similar kind of story. This was her response to Jesus reflecting an extraordinary humility, an extraordinary gratitude, and a heart that just wanted to show love and pour love out on this guy for some reason. And she does so in a, the symbol that she could find most meaningful, and that was done in this way. The Pharisee's response then to this is in verse 39, and it's a bit surprising. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This statement kind of confirms his purpose for the lunch and inviting Jesus into it. It shows that he's questioning who Jesus is and is wanting to find a way to trip him up. And there's a special construction in the original text of this that helps us better understand the intent of his question. It's a, an if-then statement, a conditional statement, but this special construction expects the answer of no to each of the parts of it. So notice in verse 39, if we were to interpret it, it would be like this. If this man were a prophet, and I know he's not, he would have known who and what sort of person this is who is touching him. But he doesn't know. And notice, too, at the beginning of verse 39, the man did not say this out loud. He was saying it to himself. But Jesus responds in verses 40 to 43. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh Uh-oh. I wouldn't want Jesus to say that to me. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. What Jesus says and does at this moment counters what Simon said by demonstrating that Jesus is more than a prophet. Remember, Simon questioned, if this man were a prophet. But Jesus knew, miraculously, what Simon had been saying to himself, demonstrating a knowledge that goes beyond what is natural in this regard. And Jesus' story will be explained in 44 and following. But I should make one quick comment about the denarius. A denarius 
was the equivalent of a day's wage for an agricultural worker back then. So the 50 and the 500. So a day's wage, if we were to do it today and figure about $12 an hour, eight hours a day, about $100, $96 a day, it would work out to about the debt forgiven would be $4,800 for one man and $48,000 for another. So it was a large sum that was forgiven. But Jesus' response in verses 44 to 48, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the moment, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus kind of upbraids. Simon, the Pharisee, for not greeting him appropriately in this kind of Middle Eastern setting. Now, I've got to confess something. I have never greeted anybody like this. Uh, And I was thinking about that more recently. Gosh, what would that look like today? Like, what would it look like if I invited Steve Hom? Raise your hand, Steve. (laughs) <laughs> what, what would it look like if I invited Steve Hom over for dinner and he comes to the door and I see him walk in and I think, man, Steve, those are pretty grimy feet. Let me go get a bucket of water and uh, some ivory soap and scrub you down a little bit. And by the way, come here, let me give you a kiss. Uh, and ask my wife, could you go into the kitchen and grab a bottle of Wesson oil and I'm going to... Steve needs some on his head. No Western oil? Well, Crisco would be fine. We could do some of that. I'll rub that in there. It just seems kind of weird to us, uh, this kind of thing. And yet Jesus is criticizing the uh, Pharisee for not greeting him. But this kind of situation would be an appropriate response in a Middle Eastern Jewish household. Uh, And you all probably know, I mean, they would have worn sandals, dirty, dusty roads, and it was very common to wash someone's feet when they came and make that uh, available. And even uh, the kiss, four of Paul's letters conclude with, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, that's something we don't quite do, and that's one of the reasons J.B. Phillips in his translation Any of you know what it says? Greet one another with a hearty handshake. Because the kiss was a Middle Eastern cultural expression of a greeting when you saw someone. And so finding the right cultural expression for that is the most appropriate. But the anointing of the head, uh, I don't know if you've ever smelled some of the oils that come out of Israel. They're very aromatic. And so there's a mixture of different things that go into the oil to the point where it almost becomes like a a fragrant perfume 
or cologne or something. So putting some of this lightly on the head of a, of a, a guest or a traveler is kind of a nice thing because we didn't have any antiperspirant back then and <laughs> a variety of things like that. But this was kind of the nice thing to do when you greeted someone. Uh, we have to think about what would, might be the equivalent today. If I invite somebody to my home now, I might, yeah, what can I get you to drink? And uh, got some chips and guacamole over here, and little man hug, and so on. None of that happened when Jesus walked into the Pharisee's house. Nothing that was appropriate for that setting uh, had taken place. And Jesus calls him out on it and says, uh, Simon, you didn't greet me in an appropriate way. And I don't think in this instance that Simon or that Jesus was being kind of hurt and vindictive at Simon, but I think he saw Simon's heart. There was an aura of self-righteousness. Simon was checking Jesus out, very skeptical about it. And, and that was more of the motivation and the intention for calling him out on all of this. And, and yet Jesus uh, responds uh, by telling him about the woman. And he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much in what she did and demonstrated that love. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And I don't even think it would be appropriate to say well, the Pharisee had few or little sins. Because I think what's lost on the Pharisee is the fact that he too is a sinner in need of the redemption by God's grace. Yet he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it at all. But Jesus speaks then of his authority in verses 49 and 50 to forgive sins. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the passage concludes then with a statement that we say all the time, you are saved by grace through faith. The actions of the woman anointing his feet with his perfume, wiping him with her hair, isn't an action of work that merited something with Jesus at the time. It was an action of gratitude. So, so thankful for the forgiveness that she had in Christ. And it was her faith that was the instrumentality of her salvation. And I love the way the passage ends. Go in peace. Because Jesus said, my peace I bring to you, my peace I leave with you. All the Jews were looking forward to the Messianic era as a time of shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. It would be a time of great peace. But this peace not only meant political peace, but it meant peace above all with God from whom they were alienated. And now she could live with a clean conscience before God because she knew she had been a sinner and she could live in the knowledge that she has a relationship with God. So this passage is an interesting passage because it's the tale of two sinners. 
It's the tale of someone who knew that they needed God's touch, God's forgiveness, and God's redemption. Someone who knew very well, deep in the recesses of her soul, that there was nothing she could bring to God that would merit forgiveness. She had to rely on God's grace, and that was through Christ. Alternatively, there's another person here who doesn't know that he's a sinner. And yet Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His understanding and definition of sin is such that it doesn't involve him. And so he simply looks at the way others fall short. And as a result of that, tragically, he misses the grace of God in his own life and goes on a road of self-justification and is not forgiven for his sin. Yet he is a religious leader. And there's an incredible irony in that. And this is part of the lesson for us today in terms of understanding precisely our plight, our situation before God, even if we've grown up in the church, and knowing that we too need the mercy of God because of our sin. There's four lessons from this passage that I'd kind of like to summarize quickly here, and we'll bring this to a close. Number one is this. I think this passage teaches us that all of us have a tendency to trivialize sin, to make it less than what it really is. This was truly the Pharisee's problem. He couldn't see his own sinfulness and his need for forgiveness. But if I'm willing to look deeply at my own life, I can see that that's very true for my own life as well. I remember a few years ago, driving down Imperial Highway, uh, going westbound uh, from Beach Boulevard. And I don't know if you remember, it's just whoosh. I mean, you, you, can really, you can really go on Imperial Highway. And so I was a little bit late for a luncheon appointment that I had, and I was uh, cruising down Imperial Highway, uh, listening to the radio and so on. And I saw these lights flashing behind me, and so... I immediately moved over so the policeman could get by. (laughs) And as I moved over to the right lane, the motorcycle with its lights moved over to the right lane too. I thought, that's odd. I I wonder if there's somebody up in front of me or something. And then I pulled over onto first, and he followed me. And so I thought, oh, no, this, he really is. I wonder if I've got a light out or something. And, and I knew deep down in my heart that I was a bit guilty here. He walked up, and he said, I don't know why they always say this. Steve, you'll have to tell me. Do you have any idea why I pulled you over? And I said, man, I don't, I don't have an idea on what's going on. And, and he said, well, you were going like 65 and a 45. That's enough of an idea. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, that's crazy. And uh, he <laughs> wrote me a little slip of paper, and I got to take my first online course that way. Um, but as I reflected on that personally, 
it just made me realize that in every situation like that, not some, every situation like that, when I'm confronted with something I am doing wrong, my natural tendency is to find some way to justify myself. Oh my gosh, you know, how, why is it only posted for 45 at a place where it should be 65? Or is my speedometer not working right? Uh, you know, I just, there's so many ways. You know, is a speed trap here? What's going on? There's so many ways that I try to justify myself on that. And I could look issue by issue in my life and know that's my knee-jerk response. We all have a tendency that way. I know my oldest son, Jeff, that you see here sometimes uh, uh, when he doesn't have a baby that he's tending to. Uh, he had a friend that went into the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. And if you go into the Sheriff's Academy and then go into the Sheriff's as working, you have to spend your time in the county jail uh, serving uh, with the inmates there. And I used to kid with his friend. I said, did you, have you found any guys yet that admit what they did? No. It's always somebody else's. They planted those drugs on me. Or it's always somebody else's fault. And so every time I'd ask him, have you found anybody admitted, uh, fessed up to it yet? No, no. It's in all of us to, we're not that bad. We couldn't be that bad. And we don't respond in the way that this woman responded. Yet she is held up as the example here, as one who fully, completely recognizes her sinfulness before God and her need to depend on the mercy and grace of God for forgiveness. She is the one that we need to follow on this. And I, I just have to say this as well. As we reflect on the Old Testament... The entire sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and goats and animals, and so on. Why did God even make this system to begin with? And I think, and there's not an explicit verse that says this, but I think that the key to this is in recognizing that this is a constant and was a constant symbol for the Jewish people and us as we reflect back on it to show and illustrate how costly sin is how seriously God takes it, that it requires death. It requires the blood of another to atone for that sin. So don't trivialize it. Don't find an excuse. Even if you're a religious leader, don't find an excuse and don't trivialize it. A second thing that this passage does is it gives us a picture of faith. One of the, in the final verse it says, Your faith has saved you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should both boast. Faith, as we see illustrated in this woman, is trust. Trust in a person. And this person is Jesus Christ. She believed the claims of Jesus. She believed that he truly could forgive her sin. And she responded to him with just not being able to get enough of him and trying to show her gratitude for the forgiveness that he brings. She is overwhelmingly grateful. Thirdly, this passage shows that, and I think we need to hear this sometimes, this passage shows that emotion 
is an appropriate response to God. She wept. She cried. She wet his feet with her tears. There was deep, profound emotion. And Jesus commends that. He receives it. And it honors him. I was at a conference this last week in St. Louis of seminary presidents, seminary deans, and I was hanging out a little bit with a Hispanic pastor who is now, he's been a seminary dean. And he was telling a story about being asked to go to the upper Midwest, and he was speaking for a group of Scandinavians. And he was laying it on as best as he could, teaching the Bible and, 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 and doing the best he could. And yet, he wasn't getting a response from the people. And he thought, man, I am just doing something wrong here. And so he got one of his friends that had invited him. They went out to lunch, and he said, what am I doing wrong? There's just no response at all. And the, the leader of the church said, what do you mean? I've never seen him so excited. <laughs> and I know that there's cultural expressions of emotion, and we have to be sensitive to that as well. But sometimes I think we need to let it out and express our deep gratitude to God for his indescribable gift. Emotion is an appropriate way to respond to God, and it's extravagant gratitude that she shows in this regard. Amen. And fourth and finally, forgiveness of sin is our gospel. Forgiveness of sin is our good news. That's why we're here in Lahara, right? That's why we've come to proclaim forgiveness of sin. We have come here to proclaim the gospel. That's what Dennis was all about. He wanted folks to know. That's what we should do. We want folks to know about this. I've been enamored lately with uh, a passage from the Apostle Paul, Titus 3, 4, and following. And it reads this way, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, the problem of the Pharisee, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's our gospel. That's the simple good news that we proclaim, and we can proclaim that from the rooftops. A number of years ago, I was together with my wife, Barbara, and we were leading a, a Bible study for people that were new to the church, and people, some of which were not believers, and they hadn't been exposed to the gospel. It was the third week into it, and we were covering Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, which is the heart of the gospel message. There was a couple that was there that day. Uh, they were probably in their 30s, and they had a couple of kids and so on, and they hadn't heard a lot of this before. And they lingered after we finished up, and they wanted to talk. And so Barbara and I met with them afterwards. 
And the lady began by saying, I want to believe this. I really, really want to believe this. And then she got really emotional, and she said, but Clint, you have no idea what kind of person I have been. Uh, I know, she said, I will pay. And she was just raw, upfront, honest in that way. I went back to the text and said, let's take a look again at what it says in terms of forgiveness and what God has done through Jesus Christ, through his redemption and all of his work for us. And she was struggling with that. And in the background, I'm just praying, Lord, open her eyes to see the truth. Because the scripture says, hasn't the God of this age blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Praying that something would break through. And we went back and forth with the texts that way. And I knew deep in my heart that the gospel is the power of God for salvation as well. And all of a sudden, she just, like the floodgates from heaven opened up, and she just burst into tears. And she says, I get it. She says, I get it. He really will forgive me. He really will wipe this away for me. And Barbara and I had the joy of showing her how she could enter this relationship with Christ. Friends, that is our good news. This is why we're here. This is why we're at La Habra. This is what we want to do. And then we want to come together and express our gratitude to God with emotion because of his indescribable love and his goodness for us. Bow with me. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for forgiving me. I just think of where I was at and where you have brought me. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for bringing me into your family. Lord Jesus, if you were here bodily, we would just want to hug you and thank you so much. But receive our praise, receive our words of gratitude as we thank you for your indescribable gift. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.